Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Beke Okelina, your host. Welcome to New Books in African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Beke Okelina, your host. My guest today is Dr. Skate Skinner. She's a lecturer in the history of Africa and its diasporas at the University of Birmingham. She's going to be speaking to us about her new book, The Fruits of Freedom in British Togoland, Literacy, Politics, and Nationalism, 1914 to 2014. Dr. Skinner, welcome to the interview. Becky, thanks for inviting me, and thanks also for taking the time to read the book. Uh, please could you tell me uh, a little bit about yourself? Um, I am a small-town girl. I come from a small place um, to the north side of Liverpool, and I'm a child of teachers. So I was brought up to value the study of history and think that this was something worth doing. My parents are, I think, part of a post-war generation of children who benefited a lot from the expansion of the welfare state in Britain and also from the expanded opportunities for fee-free education at the secondary and higher levels. So they saw a very close connection between education, self-improvement and sort of upward social mobility and they were quite ambitious on my behalf and that influenced my approach to schooling and it also influenced me to apply to Oxford for my first degree and that is where I got interested in African history. Um, I did a class with Megan Vaughan on um, East and Central Africa in the colonial period and I very much admired Megan Vaughan and all the work that she was doing and that led me to want to do an MA in African history which I did when I was in Paris the following year Um, and that also gave me an opportunity to learn some French And whilst I was in Paris, most of the friends I made there were planning to do PhDs. So I kind of ended up following along and doing a PhD as well. And I applied to Birmingham, which, as you know, has a reputation for Africa-focused research. And that's how I ended up doing the PhD and actually staying on at Birmingham afterwards. So why did you write this book and um, why specifically on British Togoland? Well, I had learned quite a lot of French whilst I was in Paris for a year, and I wanted to make use of that in my research. So I decided that I should work on a border between an Anglophone and a Francophone African nation. So that narrowed things down a bit, and Togo came out, Togoland came out near the top of the list. And initially, I think what had worried me most about doing a PhD was that sense of, will I be able to get enough sources? So I had been quite preoccupied with a project that would give me plenty of sources in accessible government archives. So I'd started out thinking in terms of a comparison of British-French administration and also British-French approaches to post-war development in their West African colonies. But when I started visiting the region, I realised that really I didn't know very much about the place at all. And what I was really enjoying when I went there was talking to older people and listening to what they thought about the history of their region and what they wanted to tell me. And that what they wanted to tell me seemed to me more important than ideas that I might have come up with on the basis of some books that I'd read in a library several thousand miles away. So my research focus ended up kind of changing in line with what the people I met in the region were talking about. And at the time that I was doing my PhD, a lot of people were talking about the Togoland question. And so that is what I ended up working on. Yeah, and uh, your research um, basically focuses on this abloder movement 
And the initiatives and our ideologies uh, within this movement were from a rural setting, not um, an urban uh, phenomenon. So I'm just wondering what the spark was for these uh, people in these rural um, areas to begin to uh, to organize and to um, to work against uh, the colonial system. Well, in the book, I looked through some census data about the actual size of populations in different towns and villages in British Togoland. Um, and what that data sort of points to is that in British Togoland in the mid-20th century, there was no major urban centre. There were administrative centres, such as Ho, which is now capital of Ghana's Volta region. And there were also towns like Hohwe, where buyers of cocoa and other agricultural produce and sellers of imported goods would locate themselves. So they were kind of quite busy marketing centres, but they were not comparable with um, cities like Accra or Kumasi in the Gold Coast. So this context in British Togoland through the 20th century, it wasn't a place where you had heavy industry or large-scale labour unions. You didn't have railway workers' unions or dot workers' union, as you might have found in the main coastal ports of the Gold Coast. So it is a question then, if we're not looking at organised labour in big urban centres as a kind of basis for political activism, what are we looking at? And I think in the book I've tried to tap into a few different factors which influence the shape of politics and political activism in British Togoland. So one important theme is the resolution of disputes, which um, arose due to the implementation of policies of indirect rule in this region. And then as indirect rule was replaced by um, elected and local and district councils, that again gave rise to a lot of local debate and argumentation um, about what type of authority chiefs should exercise, which towns should be under which chiefs, what types of cases should be heard in which tribunals, um, how much local rates should be, how they should be paid, which towns they should be spent in, and so on and so on. So through those kind of localised debates, I think a strongest association arose between literacy, formal schooling, and leadership in those debates. And if you look down to the very local um, archival sources, there's a lot of documentation about struggles between paramount chiefs and divisional chiefs, or struggles between paramount chiefs and commoners, or struggles of um, commoners and paramount chiefs against divisional chiefs. So you get different kind of configurations in these local struggles. But what's arising is that teachers and literate school leavers were sometimes drawn into these debates as if they were kind of experts, or sometimes they instigated those debates because they had a strong view on how a local area ought to develop or what kind of structures it ought to foster. Um, so I think those disputes around local government and the legacies of indirect rule were quite important in allowing people to cut their teeth, if you like, um, in political debates in local areas. But that said, I wouldn't want to depict Togolanders as a very remote rural people who were only preoccupied with their own town affairs and were isolated from the rest of the world. Because I really don't think that's true. Um, Togolanders were quite mobile. A lot of people travelled for schooling and also for apprenticeships. Some people did go to larger towns for employment, but I think a lot of people also travelled within and between rural areas, for example, seasonal farm labour, sharecropping arrangements and trading between small towns. So one thing that really fascinated me then was how people who were living in quite a rural setting in small towns and villages were accessing a lot of diverse information about events in other parts of Africa and events elsewhere in the world. And they were applying that knowledge 
to their own interpretation of what was going on in their locality. And I think what I try to convey in the book is that a strong sense of belonging in or a strong focus on a particular place did not equate for these people to insularity or isolation. I think the activists were very eclectic in their interests, and that comes across quite strongly in the texts that they produced. Um, in your in your research, do you know if um, some of the more radical or revolutionary literature, like from um, the, the Gavis, the Negro Wall, for example, if that uh, was something that some of these people in the rural settings were reading in um, in Togo, I know that was considered seditious by the British government in most of their territories, but do you know if they had access to literature like that, which could have motivated them or uh, propelled them to begin to organize against colonial rule? Um, I think it's quite difficult to pinpoint exactly what people had access to in the pre-Second World War period. So I think quite a lot of the people I spoke to were very old um, by the time I met them around the end of the 1990s, the early 2000s. And so they were actually able to show me some of the stuff they read. You know, people would keep um, scrapbooks of newspaper clippings and pamphlets and so on. Um, And looking at those scrapbooks gave me a sense of where people were getting information from. So quite a lot of it came from the Gold Coast Press. Um, But then I think the work of people like Leslie James would probably suggest that what was in the Gold Coast press itself was influenced by this wider Atlantic context. So I think um, whilst it's difficult for me to say what exactly people were reading in the 1930s, I think I don't think we can rule out that they were in some sense partaking in this circulation of ideas around a black Atlantic world. Uh, most of the leaders of the anti-colonial uh, nationalist movements in Africa were people we may consider elites or the intelligentsia class. Many of them studied in Europe and America. I'm thinking of uh, figures like Kwame Nkrumah, Namdi Azikiwe, Julius Nyerere. But that wasn't the case with the leaders of the Abloder uh, movement in British uh, Togoland. They lacked high academic qualifications and financial resources, yet they saw themselves as authentic and legitimate spokesmen of their people. I'm wondering how did they assume this role and what was the basis of this claim? I think we can study, there's two broad approaches to studying education and one of them would lead us to focus on institutions and this has been done quite a lot and there's quite a lot of studies that focus on key institutions like Achimoto College in the Gold Coast or Umaya in Nigeria which was the subject of Terry Ochiaga's book um, on Achebe and I think those studies they tend to focus in on the values that are generated in particular institutions. So they look at the kind of habits and the attitudes and the networks that are cultivated through educational institutions. And that tends to lead to an emphasis on cohesion, that schools generate cohorts of people who share similar ideas and values and act that out when they go into a wider society. But I think there is another way of looking at education, which became quite important in my book, and that's to understand schools as part of a system, that schooling is organised hierarchically, such that the individual is encouraged to aspire to progress upwards through a system. And how far you go in the system influences the position that you enter the labour market at when you come out of the school system. So it influences your earnings and it influences what you can provide for your family members. So when you think of schooling in that way, um, it would lead you to put more emphasis on new forms of differentiation and how schooling creates advantages and opportunities for some people. But in the process of doing that, it tends to marginalize other people. And Although there are studies which have looked at missionary and church schooling in Togoland from the perspective of institutional values and cohort cohesion, I think in my book, the second sort of focus on 
ladders of opportunity and a hierarchical structuring of opportunity is important. So what I was consistently told by people who were former teachers who had also been political activists, they constantly emphasized to me that secondary schooling was not available in British Togoland for the first half of the 20th century. So that meant that if you were a successful student from primary and middle, if you wanted to go to secondary, you had to go to the Gold Coast as a boarder. And that was so expensive that it was completely beyond the reach of most families. So for the more successful students from the primary and the middle schools, they tended to um, follow the path into teacher training colleges, which had been set up by missionaries and by successor churches because that was a more affordable way for them to extend their own education and enter into if you like a profession and white collar work but those avenues in British Togoland were actually very competitive because precisely because they were the only way by which most people could extend their opportunities so you actually had to be quite talented and succeed in quite an intense competition to get into some of these training colleges And that meant that the trained teachers became a kind of elite in British Togoland. Often the teacher was by far the most highly educated person in the village um, if they were a primary school teacher. And if they were working in the senior primary or middle levels, then obviously there might be a cluster of those trained teachers working together in a school in one of the bigger towns. But definitely they were recognised by the people around them as the most highly educated in the region. And I think because a lot of teachers were posted not very far from home, they tended to be posted within the same area that their own local language was spoken. It meant that the teachers themselves felt a sense of belonging in the areas where they were posted. And they wanted to make a very active and very tangible contribution to the improvement of physical infrastructure in towns by organising self-help projects. And they also wanted to make a contribution by creating avenues for social mobility for other people. So the work of the teacher was seen to be very central to the progress of a town. And I think that coupled with the sort of elite status of teachers, it explains why they became so central in the politics of the region. Yeah, so if the teachers are central in the politics of the region, I'm just wondering what the relationship would have been between the teachers and the British colonial administrators and also with uh, their religious groups. I'm thinking, for example, uh, a teacher who is trained uh, at a Catholic at a Catholic school. Uh, you have a British um, a British government um, official who might not necessarily uh, be Catholic. Uh, were there any forms of tensions in this relationship between um, the religious um, the religious groups as well as the uh, the colonial administration? Okay, so I mean, you probably know that originally Togo was a German colony, and it was after the First World War that the British and the French divided German Togo. Well, it was during the war that they divided um, Togo between them into British Togoland and French Togoland, and the border was readjusted at the end of the war. So it, that was quite a pressing issue when the um, British entered their sphere of Togoland or what became their sphere of Togoland, they realised that the schools were emptying, the teachers were not coming to their posts because nobody was paying their salaries anymore. So all of the kind of structures that had been built up under the German system and through the initiative of German missionaries and the African students who they trained, who became the teachers, all of those kind of structures were going into freefall or abeyance. And the British were, they recognised that this was going to be a problem. So what the British moved towards fairly quickly was um, trying to interest mission societies that were of a similar kind of faith denomination, but not German, to come in and take over the administration of this kind of church educational structure. 
And at the same time, the African evangelists and teachers were organizing themselves and asserting more independence from the European missionary structures to form their own ever church. So you've got quite a complicated situation going on. And the British, the sort of preferred modus operandi um, in Togoland, it kind of mirrored what they were doing in the Gold Coast. What they wanted to do was leave the everyday running and management of the schools to either the mission societies or the successor church. Um, But they would give grants in aid to those schools which passed inspection and which adhered to certain rules. Were there any Muslims at all in this area? Within British Togoland, um, there are Muslim populations in the northern section. And a lot of my book focuses more on the southern section than on the northern section. That is an area where more research needs to be done. And there is someone called Paul Stacey who's done a bit of research on that. And there's also somebody at the University of Ghana who's working on that now. So I'm hoping that more will come out but it's, it is, it's an area for further research because even in southern Togoland, where Christianity was much more um, kind of dominant than Islam, in the commercial centres you had Zongos or stranger quarters where a lot of people were Muslims. So there were clusters of Muslims living in southern Togoland, even though they were minorities. How did the approaches of the German missions differ from those of the British missions in terms of education? Well, probably one of the people who's written most effectively on this in English is Birgit Meyer. And I think what she her work tends to emphasize is that the Bremen mission in particular, they were pietists and they saw um, they saw language as sort of containing the essence of a people or the essence of a culture. And so they really didn't believe that you could make people Christians by teaching them Christianity in a different language. They felt that you had to engage your people in their mother tongue, that that was the way you could really enter hearts and minds. And so the Bremen mission had always placed a lot of emphasis on teaching in local languages. And the Bremen missionaries who went to... um, Togo in the late 19th century, they did all learn local languages and often to a very high degree of fluency. Then they produced teaching materials in local languages. And some of that kind of legacy lived on. Um, So even after most of the German missionaries had gone from the region, there was still a value placed on local languages by successor churches. And for example, some of the trained teachers who I spoke to during my research, they would emphasize that when they went to training college, one of the exercises that they had to do in order to pass the course was to write um, a short novel or a play in their local language. So it was something that they could actually use when they went into their classes. They could get their students to read these novels or to perform the play in their own language. So that local language thing was highly valued. Um, And I think that was a stronger feature of the Bremer mission and the successor churches as compared to, say, the Methodists or the Anglicans. What was it in the education of teachers, whether it was their Catholic, Presbyterian, or other other Christian um, groups that created this consciousness in them to protest against colonial rule? There's probably a few elements to it. I think one element is... It's, it was that their training, like the, the model was a teacher catechist model. So a lot of teachers were simultaneously trained as catechists. And that actually became a bone of contention because later on, a lot of people wanted, if you like, to take a more modern and inverted commas view of teaching, the idea that it was a profession that had techniques and expertise that were, if you like, more secular. But the original model hitched teaching and catechism very closely so I think it gave teachers the that sense that they were responsible for cultivating um, appropriate moral behavior in their students and that this was something that the students parents expected them to do so I think that sense of teachers 
um, wanting to to prove their contribution to raising good citizens um, was quite pervasive through their training. So if you like, that's the answer which focuses on how the teachers are engaging with people in their own area. But I think the other side of it is that once people were highly literate in English and once they were able to do things like enter correspondence courses and read newspapers from the Gold Coast or um, subscribe to magazines, which they would receive through the post from different parts of the world, they had access to a lot of information which they could then use to reflect upon things that were happening in their area. One of the things that teachers and other highly literate people in the region were often interested in, it was the United Nations, particularly after World War II. A lot of people wanted to have their own copies of documents like the United Nations Charter. So if you like, they were engaging with moral issues at the local level, but also with um, examples from elsewhere around the world of political protest, of struggle, ideals of self-determination. And those things all came together. Um, I wouldn't like to say that there was a single consciousness because I think people's life trajectories were in some ways quite different and they had different interests and because they were eclectic in the sources of information they drew upon I don't think it's possible to say that they all sort of thought the same way with a single consciousness but I think it was those factors which um, made them very um, sharp very attuned to political debate very competent in unpacking a series of events and seeing where were the illogicalities or where were the injustices and being able to mobilize vocabulary and rhetoric from different sources in order to challenge injustice. So I think they were skillful. I would say they were multilingual, they were highly literate and they were skillful in the, if you like, the techniques of quotation, interrogation, documentation, argumentation. Let us speak about uh, this idea of education for citizenship. Arthur Chris Jones advocated um, at some point moving away from this idea of school-based uh, education toward mass education, um, adult education. The idea here was to move the people away from African leaders whom the colonial government considered self-seekers or whom in the Indian context they may have called uh, baboons. So how did the people in British Togoland respond to these uh, colonial initiatives of mass, mass education that was aimed at creating good citizens? Did people enroll uh, in these programs? Did the teachers who were already part of the formal education system resist uh, some of these reforms? Yeah. Well, adult education became quite a big thing in British Togoland. And there were two broad types so the first type was um, mass education and social welfare programs, which fell within the remit of the British administration. And they focused on local language literacy campaigns, so making people literate in their first spoken language. But they also saw those literacy campaigns as being stimulators for self-help organisation and for community development projects. And this became a whole kind of sphere of expertise in the late colonial period. And I've written some articles on that separately. But I would say those kinds of initiatives were quite popular in British Togoland and a lot of people joined. Um, one of the reasons they were popular was because there was already this predisposition, if you like, towards valuing literacy in local languages. Um, and the mass education campaigns were often particularly popular with women because girls' schooling opportunities were more limited than that of boys. So when you looked at the illiterate adult population in the 1940s and 1950s, women were more likely to be kind of overrepresented. So they were often quite enthusiastic participants in literacy campaigns. And teachers were often um, mobilised and expected to help in those campaigns. So I don't think that was particularly because the colonial administration expected it of them. I think it was more because local communities expected it of them. You know, the teachers were helping 
the young people and particularly the young boys to have these opportunities for social mobility. And some of the adult women wanted, if you like, they wanted their share of these opportunities. So teachers were often quite active contributors to those mass literacy campaigns and community development projects. Um, and like I say, I think that's more about the expectations of the people around them. I don't think they did it because they were compelled to do it by colonial administration. But there was a second type of adult education in the region, and this is extramural studies. So the extramural phenomenon that was linked to ideas about worker education in Great Britain and the idea that universities should not become ivory towers, but should extend knowledge and opportunity to workers. And so extramural studies programs um, in the Gold Coast and in British Togoland, they were part of an idea that when the University College of the Gold Coast was established, it shouldn't just be for an ivory, a sort of an ivory tower for privileged elites, that it should have a role and make itself accessible to people uh, a wider range of people. So adult extramural studies classes, they often sort of tackle things that you might normally think of as being part of a university curriculum. So there's a lot of um, courses on um, structures of government, constitutions, the meaning of decolonization, what independence should look like, a lot of um, classes which um, extended people's knowledge of international affairs, but also allowed them to apply that to the situation that they saw around them. But one thing that was a little bit tricky for the Togolanders, on the one hand, um, teachers were often quite avid participants in extramural studies. And this was because a lot of them had been through teacher training colleges. And what that meant was that they had a teacher training qualification. They didn't have the qualifications that would qualify them to enter the university as a formal fee-paying student who would graduate with a certificate. So it was difficult for them to meet the actual entry requirements to the university. But through the extramural studies classes, they could sign up and somehow participate in a curriculum, even if they were not going to graduate with a certificate at the end of it. So a lot of um, school leavers in Togoland and teachers in particular were interested in pursuing extramural classes and the subject matter because they often got to suggest topics to the teacher rather than being presented with a ready-made curriculum. That was very appealing to them. But it kind of also reminded them that the university college was in the Gold Coast and that in, what that basically meant was that in order for them to access higher education, it meant accessing it through Gold Coast structures. So it sort of heightened that sense that within British Togoland itself, there wasn't even a secondary school till about 1950. Yet, meanwhile, in the Gold Coast, people were talking about a university college and then finally a full university. So it kind of heightened that sense that British Togoland was... Um, marginalised or disadvantaged in terms of this national infrastructure of education that was developing through the Gold Coast. We've been talking about um, education. Um, let us talk about the other very important aspect of your book, which is reunification. So how did um, these uh, people in British Togoland make a case for reunification? And how did they articulate their arguments in both speech and print? Okay, so as we've said, obviously there was German Togo, which was formed as a colony in the end of the 19th century. And this was divided during World War One between the British who came from the Gold Coast side in the West and the French who came from Dahomey in the East. And they split Togoland between them. So Togoland was first... Um, Mandate two mandated territories, which were administered through United League of Nations mandates agreements. And then after the Second World War, they became trust territories, um, which were administered through trusteeship agreements. Um, so one of the... Um, one of the issues that had come up through the interwar period was the extent to which... Um, the British could administer their sphere of Togoland 
according to the same principles that they administered the Gold Coast and through the same structures and organizational mechanisms. And then ditto on the French side, how far the French could kind of borrow from what they were doing in Dahomey and extend those administrative practices and services through French Togoland. And this seems like a bit of a dry and picky kind of a question, but it actually proved to be very, very important because quite a lot of Togolanders on the ground were recognizing that if basically your practical everyday administrative decisions were being made with reference either to Gold Coast practices and structures or French West African or Dahomeyan practices and structures, you were in effect moving towards a situation where Togoland was not a nation anymore. It wasn't Togoland divided into two zones. It was two separate, two entirely separate administrative structures. So this issue had kind of rumbled through the interwar period and really exploded after the Second World War because the pressure to actually demonstrate steps towards self-government was kind of concretized through the United Nations Charter and particularly in Article 76, which referred to the trusteeship territories. It made it very clear that self-government or independence was an objective. And we can talk a bit more about the detail of that in a bit. So when I looked at what um, activists were writing about, there was a very clear pattern towards clusters of texts that were making the case that British Togoland and French Togoland had been one nation and that they should be one nation again, that they should reunify. And then there was a cluster of other texts that were written from a different perspective, rather saying that British Togoland, its practical interests would be served by following along with this pattern of integrating it with Gold Coast administrative structures and ultimately making it part of the Gold Coast, an integral part of the Gold Coast. So this is the kind of broad debate that arose. And I was quite interested to see whether arguments that were made in English were different from those made in local languages. So in other words, I was wondering to what extent people who were writing these texts to advocate for the reunification of the two Togolands, did they address a local language readership in a different way or with different arguments from those that they presented in English in texts which either were intended to be read or had the possibility of being read by British administrators. And I think what I found was a surprising consistency in the actual arguments that were being made um, and even sometimes the metaphors that were being used in English language texts were often quite similar to those that were being used in local language texts. And I thought that was quite interesting because it sort of, it problematized the idea of this very strict, if you like, rural-urban divide. It problematized the idea that rural voters had to be addressed in a particular way, or they had to be addressed through a particular language, or they had to be made interested in politics through very localised appeals to their specific local interests. I thought it was quite interesting that even in local language texts, a lot of the arguments were quite big arguments. They were quite abstract arguments about justice, about self-determination, about democracy, about rights. Um, and that these were considered to be um, accessible to um, people who were not literate in English or French, and actually that it was imperative that people at that local level could engage with these concepts. So I thought the actual, the local language text and the English language text were very intriguing, and they told us a lot about how people actually debated issues, what they actually discussed among themselves, what kind of rhetorical devices, imagery, but also those more abstract concepts about what self-determination meant. They were all very much features of an active debate in a rural environment. Uh, you mentioned in the book that the two trust territories of Togoland were divided on a socioeconomic um, basis as well, with lines that were horizontal, dividing both north and south. 
could you comment on the socioeconomic differences and how this divide affected the results of the plebiscite? Yeah, one of the things that I found when looking at British Togoland, there was an element, there's something kind of slightly paradoxical, which is that in the southern part of British Togoland, which is primarily but not exclusively an Ebe-speaking area, a lot of comparisons would be drawn between southern British Togoland and the Gold Coast and highlighting the fact that educational provision and road infrastructure and so on, they were more developed in the Gold Coast areas, including Gold Coast Ebbe-speaking areas, as compared to the areas in southern British Togoland. So there's certainly a lot of arguments being made about relative advantages and disadvantages or relative levels of development and um, lack of development. And that was an important element of British Togolanders' critiques of British administration. They felt that they had been marginalised, that had been neglected, that they were kind of the poor cousin or the marginal kin, and that the British were primarily focused on providing resources or providing infrastructure within the Gold Coast itself, which was their colony. Whereas for British Togoland, because it was a trusteeship territory, people felt that the British did somehow were not as invested in it. They didn't care about it as much as they cared about the Gold Coast. But conversely, when you look um, north to south, what you can see is that northern British Togoland, rather like the northern region of Ghana or the northern territories of the Gold Coast, they were in relative terms disadvantaged as compared to the southern areas. And one of the main sources, there were two, probably two main elements in that disadvantage. One was that um, the land that was most suitable for cocoa growing was clustered in the southern part, central southern parts of the Gold Coast and British Togoland. British Togoland, the southern part, didn't actually have a huge amount of land that was suitable for cocoa, but what it did have was in the central southern areas. Whereas in northern British Togoland and the Northern Territories of the Gold Coast, the kind of terrain was less suitable for that type of cash cropping. The region was poorer and the extension of infrastructure like railroads just hadn't happened to the same extent. So Northern British Togoland um, was, um, it lacked that sort of, in terms of an obvious export uh, cash crop, it was it didn't have what southern British Togoland or indeed southern French Togoland had. Um, its road infrastructure and so on was very limited. But also the British had limited the activities of Christian missionaries in the north, which also meant that schooling had not spread as widely um, in northern territories and northern British Togoland as it had in the south. So if you like this... The, what I noticed was that southern British Togolanders will compare their lot unfavourably to those in the Gold Coast. But when you looked from north to south, you would still see that southern British Togolanders had certain advantages over their northern counterparts. Um, and I think this was a problem for the reunificationists to the extent that a lot of the activists who were most vocal for Togoland reunification, they came from the southern section. They were Ewe speakers. They wrote in Ewe, which was not a widely spoken language in northern British Togoland. So although the activists who talked about Togoland reunification, they addressed themselves to Togoland as a whole, northern Togoland, southern British French. They saw that as a whole picture. But where they came from, the language they spoke, and so on. It tended to identify them more with the southern and Ewe-speaking section. And so I think that was possibly a difficulty for them to overcome when it came to campaigning among the northern Togoland people. So how did voter registration, which was based on residency, a factor in the results of the plebiscite? Okay, so... Basically, there was a plebiscite held in May 1956, and the idea of this plebiscite was to assess the wishes of the people about the political future of British Togoland. And the plebiscite, in a way, was a gesture towards the United Nations um, Charter, and particularly Article 76, which talked about promoting the progressive development of inhabitants of trust territories towards self-government or independence, 
and um, in accordance with freely expressed wishes of the people. So the plebiscite was a gesture towards that requirement in the UN Charter. Um, but obviously when you have a plebiscite, how you frame the questions and how you determine who's eligible to vote and how you count the votes, they can all have an impact on what the outcome of the plebiscite is. And I think um, when we look at the history of plebiscites and referendums around the world more widely, we can see these issues coming up time and time again. Who's allowed to vote? What exactly the question is that they're asked and how the votes are counted and interpreted are often quite problematic issues. And that certainly applied to the plebiscite in British Sugarland in 1956. So one of the arguments that was made in the region was that since this was a plebiscite about the future of British Togoland, the voters should be British Togolanders. So if you like, that argument focused on the idea of a nationality question, that you should be able to trace through your family line your Togoland identity. But from the perspective of the organisers of the plebiscite, and it's important to remember that those who actually organised the plebiscite on the ground were working under the British administration, um, for them, they wanted to use residency. And this, in the end, was um, how, the, how voting in the plebis, how you could qualify to vote, was through residency in British Togoland. Now, it's very, very difficult with the information we have available to be very precise about how much difference this made to the results at the end. But certainly the, it was explained in the Plebiscite Commissioner's report, which I read when I was doing research for the book, and I comment on that Plebiscite um, Commissioner's report in the book. That issue of how the eligibility to vote was to be determined, it was clearly quite controversial. And the reunificationists in particular, they felt that in a way... Um, the recognition of Togoland nationality as a criteria for voting was important because it was the future of the nation of Togoland. From their perspective, that was what was at stake. So why should that be determined by somebody who was not a Togolander? That was the kind of reasoning that they had. Whereas for the administrators, what they seem to have been more concerned about was the practicalities of, if you like, identification. So although it wasn't actually specifically a requirement to have paid the rates in order to vote, in effect, um, evidence of your residence in an area could be proved by production of your rate book. So that kind of, that consideration in the end trumped. And I think people who were reunificationists felt that that was a decision that worked against them. It worked against them, if you like, at the more ideological level, that it meant that people who were not Togolanders were getting a vote which would determine the future of a Togoland nation. And it also worked against them at a practical level in the sense that um, quite a lot of people from British Togoland did migrate for periods of employment outside in the Gold Coast. And a lot of those people would have been excluded from casting their votes. Yes, I think what I want to say is that I think it's extremely difficult to measure statistically what the impact of that decision was. But certainly for some of the people who were strong advocates of reunification, they took those um, that decision around eligibility for the vote to be indicative of a mismatch between what they thought fundamentally was the meaning of being a Togolander and the meaning of self-determination for Togoland. Uh, they detected a gap between how they saw that and the process that was being imposed through the plebiscite. Um, so it was a kind of a problematic decision. When you looked at uh, the events um, around this plebiscite, even before, um, you call it uh, problematic. I might say it looks like uh, the system was rigged against uh, those who were for uh, reunification. Do you think the British were biased toward integration because of their early 
insistence on administrative union between the Gold Coast and the neighbouring trust territory of British Togoland. Yeah, I absolutely think it's very, very clear that British administrators favoured the integration of British Togoland with the Gold Coast, and they thought that that was the best outcome for British Togoland at independence. I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. Um, What the British government saw as the desirable outcome was integration. And that was a problem for those who were reunificationists. Um, So... There were all kinds of objections around the conduct of the plebiscite. And these are detailed, quite frankly, in the plebiscite commissioner's report, because the plebiscite um, commissioner's report is a United Nations document, even though the kind of implementation on the ground was often carried out through British administrators. So you've got that sort of tension there, whether it... You know, you could kind of describe it as a UN supervised plebiscite in the sense that the UN sent an international team. But that team was a very small number of people as compared to the number of British officials who were involved in the everyday implementation or the everyday um, giving concrete effect, if you like, to holding a plebiscite. So there were a huge number of issues on which the reunificationists felt that they had been fundamentally disadvantaged. So one of those issues was actually around the question that was asked in the plebiscite. So the actual question that was asked on the paper um, focused on a choice between union with the Gold Coast or separation from the Gold Coast pending other decisions about the future of British Togoland. So the British Togolanders were being asked to choose between union with the Gold Coast and this separation with a somewhat unspecified what would happen next. They weren't actually given the choice to vote clearly, explicitly and positively for reunification with French Togoland. So the very phrasing of that question was heavily contested and even more so was a contest around the use of the word union because, and I've mentioned some of the documents about this in my book, that there was actually, among the plebiscite administrators, there was actually a question mark of how would you translate that word into a local language? And there was a consultation about this, what exactly should be used as the equivalent term in a local language. Now, some of the people now who are keen to reopen debates about the Togoland question, they will say that the term union implies a free joining of equal parts, whereas the term integration would perhaps better describe how British Togoland became an integral part of Ghana under a unitary constitution. So the term union is somehow ambiguous, and that ambiguity, it was widely commented on at the time, and that issue of what was meant by union why were people asked to vote for or against a union? That is comes up now when people are discussing that process around the plebiscite. Um, yes, there's a lot more I could say on this, Becky. Um, but what I think one of the things that um, perhaps needs to be mentioned is that this term union, which was quite ambiguous, that was the question that was posed to people in the plebiscite in May 1956. Now, afterwards, another round of elections were held in the Gold Coast, and a lot of the debate in those elections was whether the Gold Coast would become independent with a federal constitution or with a unitary constitution. And the victory of the CPP in those elections in the summer of 56 meant that when the Gold Coast became independent, it did so as Ghana under a unitary constitution. So in a way, when the plebiscite was held, it wasn't clear whether when people voted for union with Ghana, might they have thought they were voting for union with Ghana in the sense of a loose federation? Or did they actually understand that when they were voting for union with Ghana, what that was going to mean was that if Ghana became independent under a unitary constitution, their 
British Togoland would be an integral part of Ghana under that unitary constitution. It wouldn't be a separate region with the kind of federal powers. So that has been a major, major source of debate in the region for years and years. Is there any growing interest towards separation from Ghana today? What do you think the future holds for former British Togoland? Okay, well, we were talking about the issues around the plebiscite. Um, But after the plebiscite results and after the former British Chogoland was integrated and Ghana had its independence, those issues didn't really die down. In fact, they were compounded because um, under the Nkrumah government, there was a Preventive Detention Act passed. And that meant that those who had advocated for Chogoland reunification um, some of them were accused of subversive activities and they were detained under the Preventive Detention Act. So during the, uh, my research for the book, I spoke to several people. Um, some of them had spent six years um, in preventive detention. They'd never been put on trial. Um, so that created, if you like, um, a lot of bitterness. It created a lot of suffering for the families involved. And because of the suffering, it led to a kind of legacy of uh, bitterness. Um, so these issues, they haven't entirely died down. Um, in 2004, Ghana held a National Reconciliation Commission. The final report came out October 2004. And, um, the former reunificationists and some of their family members, they recounted a lot about the sufferings that had, um, uh, accompanied these um, arrests under the Preventive Detention Act. And then after the National Reconciliation Commission, there was also a Constitutional Review Commission in 2010. And at that point, um, an MP from the region, Kosi Kadem, um, he actually petitioned the Constitutional Review Commission on the issue. So, There has certainly been a lot of interest in this kind of historical question around Togoland reunification and the integration of British Togoland with Ghana. But what I would say is that although there has been a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, a lot of interest and quite a lot of research undertaken by scholars and activists in the region, it hasn't translated in a straightforward way into a mass separatist movement in present day politics. So a lot of the actual reunificationists, that first generation who were themselves um, direct participants in the Ablode movement in the 50s, a lot of them are now dead. So we're talking more about their descendants, a kind of second generation. And during my research, I noticed quite a diversity of opinion about how um, the history of this plebiscite, the problematic history of the plebiscite and integration was going to connect to present day politics. So some of the people I met, they actually aligned themselves with a broader kind of Busia Dankwa tradition or a broader anti-Nkrumerist tradition within Ghana's national politics. So in other words, they felt that they were Ghanaians, they wanted to be Ghanaians, but they belonged with a particular type of political tradition in Ghana. Others of the descendants of the Ablode people rather align themselves with the NDC, which is the other kind of major political party in present-day Ghana. So again, when they were aligning themselves with the NDC, they were partaking in Ghana's national political life. And in fact, Kosi Kadem served as an NDC MP in the region. Um, Some of the people I spoke to emphasised that they were not secessionists, that what they were interested in was renegotiating the terms of a union between Ghana and the areas that had previously been British Togoland. So whilst there have been some incidents of people making quite explicit secessionist statements, this is by no means the um, only or the most logical conclusion Um, for people who are interested in telling the story of the Togoland reunification movement. What are you working on now? Um, I'm working on a couple of things at the moment. Um, I'm just finishing a book with Wilson Yayou, who is based at the University of Cape Coast in Ghana. 
And um, between us, we've kind of pooled our different language skills and archive experiences. And we've worked on translating from local language to English um, newspapers um, from the which were produced in um, Mount Agu and Palimé, which is on the French-speaking side of the border, so now in the Republic of Togo. So we've done some translations of those and a lot of kind of analysis of the political debates that were captured in those local language newspapers. So hopefully that book will be coming out next year. Um, and then I'm also working at the moment on an article which looks at the assassination of Togo's first president, Silvanus Olympio, and the coup d'etat that overthrew his government in 1963. I hope you come back next year to speak with us about uh, the book when it comes out. Thanks, Becky. I'm sure I'd be really happy to come back and speak again. Thank you very much, Dr. Skinner, for joining me on the show.